This is episode 182 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Colson Whitehead's Zone One. And this is another in our Literary Sunday series during the pandemic. I think this is actually the 19th. And I do want to forewarn you that there are some pretty gross scenes that are described in this one. And although I don't give away any spoilers and I don't think I use the F word, there is some pretty strong language. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I have such a treat for you today. It's the zombie apocalypse novel. Yes, we've finally arrived at the zombie apocalypse. Zone One, published in 2011 by Colson Whitehead. And before you turn away because you hate zombies, I'll just say this isn't your usual zombie story. Yes, the zombies are really gross, and we are subjected to the nom-nom scenes of them eating our beloved humans, but it is told with great literary flourishes. For example, let's look at this sentence. It was the faintest of disturbances on his face, as if a black eel miles below on the ocean floor had turned in its sleep and left the slim reverberation on the surface. Cool, right? Such a terrific image. So let's see why. Colson Whitehead is not your usual zombie author. He did say that the novel was an attempt to return to his adolescent fascination with horror in the Stephen King novels and science fiction in Isaac Asimov's books. But Colson is a very talented writer. He's written seven novels including his 1999 debut work, The Intuitionist, and The Underground Railroad, for which he won the 2016 National Book Award for Fiction and the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He also won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction again in 2020 for The Nickel Boys, and that made him only the fourth writer in history to have won twice. Zone One is essentially and fundamentally a story about New York City. And Colson, or Arch, as he was known as a kid, was born in New York City and raised in Manhattan. He went to the prep school Trinity School and then Harvard University. After college, he went to work for The Village Voice. He's also written a nonfiction book about New York called The Colossus of New York, which was described as a meditation on life in Manhattan in the style of E.B. White's famous essay, Here is New York. To say he's into New York City would be an understatement. He still lives in Manhattan. Uh, He has a home on Long Island, which is where the protagonist from Zone One is from. I'll just tell a little bit here about the plot. Mark Spitz is the protagonist, and he acquired that name 
during the apocalypse for a very specific reason that I won't spoil. He's a regular B-plus kind of guy who grew up on Long Island, but who had an uncle that lived in the city. So he has Manhattan envy. His job is as a sweeper to clean out the zombies from the city to make it inhabitable once again. The Marines have already come through to rid the area of the worst of the skells, flesh-eating zombies who, if they bite you, will turn you into a zombie and so-called stragglers. And these are zombies who just hang out, confused, repeating their old routine tasks without understanding what they're doing. Oh, and I should say all these zombie afflictions were all caused by a plague. Okay, I will say I thought the novel was a great read, definitely took my mind off coronavirus, and so much of the writing I just loved, so we're going to explore that a bit today. The story takes place over three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, although Friday is the longest, I think. Not a whole lot happens, just setting up his job and the situation, but I really like the writing, though... I think based on the reviews on Amazon, you might have to be in the right mood. So here's some stuff about his childhood and his interest in his uncle in Manhattan. These afternoons were preserved in a series of photographs taken by strangers. His parents were holdouts in an age of digital multiplicity, raking the soil in lonesome areas of resistance, a coffee machine that didn't tell time, dictionaries made out of paper, a camera that only took pictures. The family camera did not transmit their coordinates to an orbiting satellite. It did not allow them to book airfare to beach resorts with close access to rainforests via courtesy shuttle. There was no prospect of video, high def, or otherwise. The camera was so backward that every lurching specimen his father enlisted from the passers-by was able to operate at sans hassle no matter the depth of cow-eyed vacancy in their tourist faces or local wretchedness inverting their spines. His family posed on the museum steps or beneath the brilliant marquee with the poster screaming over their left shoulders, always the same composition. The boy stood in the middle, his parents' hands dead on his shoulders year after year. He didn't smile in every picture, only that percentage cold for the photo album. Then it was in the cab to his uncle's and up the elevator once the doorman screened them. Uncle Lloyd dangled in the doorframe and greeted them with a louche, Welcome to my little bungalow. His uncle's apartment resembled the future, a brand of manhood waiting on the other side of the river. When his unit finally started sweeping beyond the wall, whenever that was, he knew he had to visit Uncle Lloyd's apartment to sit on the sectional one last time and stare at the final empty screen in the series. He hadn't seen his uncle's name on any of the survivor roles and prayed against a reunion, the slow steps coming down the hall. We learn more about the disaster, which is described in a whole bunch of terms, When the curtain fell, before things completely deteriorated, the great unraveling, time of the disaster, before the world broke, last night. When it went down, before the flood, and of course, the end of the world as we know it. 
We also learn a lot more about Mark Spitz through these kinds of introspections and flashbacks, which did serve to irritate the Amazon readers. He'd never had trouble with the American checklist, having successfully executed all the hurdles of his life stages from preschool to junior high to college, with unwavering competence and nary a wobble into exceptionality or failure. He possessed a strange facility for the mandatory. Two days into kindergarten, for example, he attained the level of socialization deemed appropriate for those of his age and socioeconomic milieu, sharing, no biting, and almost soulful contemplation of instructions from people in authority with a minimum of fuss. He nailed milestone after developmental milestone as if every twitch were coached. Had they been aware of his location, child behaviorists would have cherished him, observing him through binoculars and scratching their ledgers as he confirmed their data and theories in his anonymous travails. He was their typical he was their most, he was their average, receiving hearty thumbs-ups from the gents in the black van parked a discreet distance across the street. In this world, however, his reward was that void attending most human endeavor with which all are well acquainted. His accomplishments, such as they were, gathered on the heap of the unsung. And some stuff about him in high school He staked out the bee, or the bee chose him. His most appropriate designation would have been most likely not to be named the most likely anything, and this was not a category. His aptitude lay in the well-executed muddle, never shining, never flunking, but gathering himself for what it took to progress past life's next random obstacle. It was his solemn expertise. There's also a lot of talk about their job and where things stand. They were in the same kind of places day after day. Keys for the communal bathrooms down the hall hung on his and hers hooks in reception, affixed to broad plastic tongues. Recycled papers stretched expectantly across tables in doctor's examination rooms like a smear of oatmeal. And the magazines in the waiting rooms described an exuberant age, now remote and hard to reconcile. It was impossible to find a gossip magazine or news weekly that had been published beyond a certain date. There was no more gossip and no more news. He was supposed to become a lawyer, at least that had been the intention of his parents, and he had been studying to become one. And so when his team uh, breaks into a law firm, Uh, He has a particular reaction to it. Mark Spitz felt it the instant they pushed in the glass doors and saw the firm's name hovering in grim steel letters over the receptionist's desk. These guys will crush you. Perhaps they only represented charities and nonprofits, but in that case he was sure their clients out-healed, out-helping-handed, overall out-charitied their competing charities, if it can be said that charities competed with one another. But of course they must, he thought. Even angels are animals. And then we get our first look at a skell when he kicks in the door to HR. Of course it's HR. He was the first live human being the dead had seen since the start, and the former ladies of HR were starving. After all this time, they were a thin membrane of meat stretched over bone. And he goes on in his interaction with them. 
This one was probably the first infected. Everything below its eyes was a dark, gory muzzle, the telltale smear produced when a face burrowing deep into live flesh. Just another day at the office when she gets bit by some New York wacko while loading up on spring mix at the corner deli's salad lounge, full of plague but unaware. That night the shivers came, and the legendary black dreams everyone had heard about and prayed against, the harbingers, the nightmares that were the subconscious rummaging through a lifetime for some kind of answer to or escape from this trap. With those early strains, you might last a whole day without flipping. She returns to her cubicle the next day because she hasn't taken a sick day in years. Then, transformation. Mark Spitz tries to justify uh, taking out these beings. He was performing an act of mercy. These things might have been people he knew, not quites, and almost could bees. They were somebody's family, and they deserved release from their blood sentence. He was an angel of death, ushering these things on their stalled journey from this sphere. And with all this kind of back and forth and introspection and going on, time really slows down, which serves to grant dread a bigger stage. He has a flashback to his encounter with HR on his uh, first day as a mail clerk and his first job. The only downer was the ogre head of human resources, who'd been relentless about Mark Spitz's paperwork, downright insidious about his W this, W that, the proper credentials. She served the places where human beings were paraphrased into numbers, components of bundled data to be shot out through fiber optic cable toward meaning. Nice, huh? And then we get some intel about where things stand with Buffalo, which has become the headquarters for the reclamation activities. And again, with that characteristic turn of phrase and and, uh, description. Supply lines were still a broken mess all around, and the sweepers were the lowest priority in everything except when it came to bullets. Everybody had enough bullets, from the Northeast Corridor to Omaha to Zone 1. Now that Buffalo had barns up and running, the former homemakers and chronic asthmatics and assorted old biddies on the assembly lines cranking out ammo day after day. Nowadays, Rosie the Riveter was a former soccer mom who had just opened her own catering business when last night came down and her husband and kids were eaten by a parking attendant at the local Mega Mall's discount appliance emporium. We start getting a few glimpses of the zombies. He'd seen an old man get eaten. Two of them got the old man down, and then all of them were on him like ants who received a chemical telegraph about a lollipop on the sidewalk. He gets to know his uh, teammates, and we do too, during this uh, phase. In the aftermath of the engagement, Gary's body withdrew into its customary scarecrow posture. In his mastery of technique, the man was an exemplar of the new civilian recruits, memorizing and then implementing the correct assault rifle and blade technique and melding his homegrown survival skills with crash-course military lore. Mark Spitz was lucky to serve in his unit, but he looked horrible. Each morning when they woke, Mark Spitz marveled anew at how his comrade was scarcely in better shape than the creatures they were sent to eradicate, discounting the one's missing body parts, of course. 
Gary had a granite complexion, gray and pitted skin. Mark Spitz couldn't help but think that something bad roosted deep in his bones, uncatalogued and undiagnosable. His eye sockets were permanently sooted, his cheeks scooped out. His preferred gait was a controlled slouch, with which he slunk around corners and across rooms, the world's last junkie. Like everyone, he'd skipped plenty of meals over the last few years, though on Gary the weight loss registered not as the result of scarcity, but as the slow creep of a subcutaneous harrowing. Mark Spitz was disabused of this theory when Gary showed him a picture taken at his sixth birthday party, the same ill demeanor evident even then. Which left Mark Spitz to opine that what they were seeing was the original grime, the very grime of Gary's youth, preserved as a token of home. It was what he'd scraped off the past and carried with him. The sweepers are masters at black humor, as, as you would. So, for example, the skirts have all fallen off the HR ladies because they've become so thin, so it exposes their underwear and thongs, and Gary cracks. No one told me it was casual Friday. In a separate place, here's more about Gary and how he survived. Gary didn't have much sympathy for the dead, a.k.a. the squares, the suckers, and the saps. When using the word dead, most survivors signaled to the listener through inflection and context that they were talking about those who had been killed in the disaster or those who had been turned into vehicles of the plague. Gary made no such distinction. With few exceptions, they were equally detestable. The dead had paid their mortgages on time and placed the well-promoted breakfast cereals on the table when the offspring leaped out of bed in their fire-resistant jammies. The dead had graduated with admirable GPAs, configured monthly contributions to worthy causes, judiciously apportioned their 401ks across diverse sectors according to the wisdom of their dead-licensed financial advisors, and superimposed the borders of the good school districts on mental maps of their neighborhoods, which were often included on the long list when magazines ranked cities with the best quality of life. In short, they had been honed and trained so thoroughly by that extinguished world that they were doomed in this new one. Gary was unmoved. From the man's description of his life before, the portrait of Mark Spitz gathered was of a misfit befuddled and banished by the signs and systems of straight life. Then came last night, transforming them all. In Gary's case, latent talents announced themselves. He prided himself on how effortlessly he had grasped and mastered the new rules, as if he had waited for the introduction of hell his whole life. We also hear about what's happening in Buffalo and explanations of, of what's happened. So in the HR department, there are five desks and four bodies. One of them had made it out. Not everyone perished. Perhaps the owner of the desk was doing chores at that very moment in one of the settlement camps, happy acres or sunny days, replacing the toilet paper in one of the chemical lavatories, eliminating dented cans of beets from the larders, and sipping whatever regional favorite diet cola the scouting teams had scrounged. The insipid slogan popped in his head, insistent as malware, We make tomorrow! 
and he flinched as he pictured the camp's administrative assistant handing out the buttons, which were then obediently pinned to scavenged clothing, one size too big or too small. Resist. He had to get all that crap out of his head, or else it would turn out bad for him. And we also see the bureaucracy and the PR machine starting to turn. This is at a briefing for the sweepers. Buffalo, he explained, wanted information on the general outline of each engagement, but in particular, they were keen for the sweepers to record demographic data, the ages of the targets, the density at the specific location, structure type, number of floors. Fabio, the lieutenant second, had rummaged Canal Street after special equipment for this very purpose. Fabio handed his boss the carton of kitty notebooks, and the lieutenant brandished it over his head, pointing out that they were equipped with convenient loops that held tiny pencils. The city bragged of an endless unraveling, a grid without limit. Of course it was bound and stymied by rivers, curtailed by geographical circumstance. It could be subdued and understood. Soon sweeper teams would roam the rural areas on an identical mission to that of the metro sweepers, concocting the equations of the countryside, putting numbers to nascent theories about scale dispersal patterns, and in time these numbers would deliver end dates and progress and the return to life before. As he sat in the restaurant, Mark Spitz pictured the lieutenant's box of tiny notebooks overflowing with half-legible sweeper scribbling, being offloaded from a military helicopter upstate and rushed by a harried private into an underground chamber at Buffalo HQ, like it was someone's liver being delicately transported to the waning recipient. He'd never been to Buffalo, and now it was the exalted foundry of the future, the Nile, the cradle of reconstruction. All the best and brightest, and most important still breathing, had been flown up to Buffalo where they got the best grub, reveled in 24-7 generators and uncurtailed hot showers on command. In turn, they had to rewind catastrophe. Rumor was they had two of the last Nobel laureates working on things up there. Useful things, none of that peace prize or literature stuff. Chowing down on hearty brain-fortifying grub, scavenged fish oil, and whatnot. If they could reboot Manhattan, why not the entire country? These were the contours of the new optimism. Now that the anti-looting regs were in effect, everyone, soldier and civilian and sweeper alike, was prohibited from foraging goods and materials belonging to anyone other than an official sponsor, whether it was Southern whiskey or all-natural depilatories. Food was exempt. Juice boxes were still legal tender in some parts of the country, but for the most part, no more stealing people. There had been laws once to abide by their fate murmuring, despite the interregnum was to believe in their return, to believe in reconstruction. Some funny thing here about the sponsors. Buffalo created an entire division dedicated to pursuing official sponsors whenever a representative turned up in exchange for tax breaks once the reaper laid down his scythe and things were up and running again. Additional goodies the public would never find out about weaveled the fine print. 
There were understandable difficulties in tracking down survivors in positions of authority over, say, the biggest national pharmaceutical chain or bicycle manufacturer, but they strolled into camp from time to time with the typical scars but eager to contribute. They generally put a price cap on their goods or specified a particular product in their brand family, one not too dear, but their sacrifices were appreciated nonetheless. Pledge all your tiny cartons of children's applesauce in all the nation's far-flung groceries and convenience stores? It was a no-brainer. They were expired anyway. The civilians out in the wild, unaware of the regulations, would be welcomed into the system in time, and they would obey. And here was another gem. He must have cracked himself up when he thought this one up. It was a new day. Now the people were no longer mere survivors, half-mad refugees, a pathetic, shit-flecked, traumatized herd, but the American phoenix. Mark Spitz is pretty cynical about another team that he meets, one of which is definitely a sadistic psycho, and the other two are just heartless creeps. And Mark Spitz imagines them getting promoted up the American Phoenix or becoming landlords. And he adds, they came from Connecticut, repugnant Connecticut. We'll talk a little bit more about Connecticut in a few minutes. The other member of the team is Caitlin. Of course she's named that. So here's her story. From her stories, she'd been a grade grubber before the disaster, and Mark Spitz had watched her maintain a grade grubbing continuum in the throes of reconstruction, rubbing her thumbs over the no-no cards and applying a yellow highlighter to the typo-ridden manuals from Buffalo. If she survived, she'd doubtless continue to be a grade grubber in that coming reborn world they crawled toward, paying her bills in a timely fashion once goods and vital services and auto pay reappeared, first in line to pull the lever, if not manning the polling booths, once they could again afford the indulgence of democracy. The lieutenant put her in charge of Omega Unit for her constancy, although given his other two choices, it didn't rang among his more visionary commands. And further along, there's more description. Here she was, long curls peeking out of her helmet, head cocked as she double-checked orders over the calm and absentmindedly wiped gore from her knife, when she should have been braiding the hair of one of her fellow sorority pledges in her favorite pad-around-the-dorm sweatpants, sexually ambiguous pop avatar crooning from the computer speakers. Of course she had been elected secretary of the student council twice. Who would make up such a thing? Maybe he thought one night it wasn't utopia that they had worked toward after all, and it was Caitlin herself who had summoned the plague as she cut into the first slice of cake at her final perfect birthday party. History had come to an end. She had blown out the candles on the old era, blotted out the dinosaurs' heavens, sent the great ice sheet scraping forth, the blood counts zooming up into madness." No one at Fort Wonton, man or woman, failed to experience an episode of cognitive dissonance on meeting Caitlin, being subjected to her buoyant giggle. But she had done the same things they all had been forced to do. She had been hunted, and she had escaped. She had killed and watched as the cast of her anecdotes was cut down, her former fellow pledges and debate partners— 
Her parents, who had obviously trained her in more than just the ways of a sunny disposition for her to have made it this far. She had survived, and that's why she was here in Zone 1, no matter what her life had been before. bit more about the zombies and a bit of commentary about people's lives. The skells. There were your standard-issue skells, and then there were the stragglers. Most skells, they moved. They came to eat you. Not all of you, but a nice chomp here or there, enough to pass on the plague. Cut off their feet, chop off their legs, and they'd gnash the air as they heaved themselves forward by their splintered fingernails, looking for some ankle action. The Marines had eliminated most of this variety before the sweepers arrived. The stragglers, on the other hand, did not move, and that's what made them a suitable objective for civilian units. They were a succession of imponderable tableau, the malfunctioning stragglers, and the places they chose to haunt throughout the zone and beyond. An army of mannequins, limbs adjusted by an inscrutable hand. The former shrink, plague-blind, sat in her requisite lounge chair, feet up on the ottoman, blank attentive face waiting for the patient who was late, ever late, and unpacking the reasons for this would consume a large portion of a session that would never occur. The patient failed to arrive, was quite tardy, was dead, was running through a swamp with a hatchet pursued by monsters. A woman cradled a wedding dress in the dressing room's murk, reenacting without end a primal moment of expectation. A man lifted the hood of a copy machine. They did not move when you happened on them. They didn't know you were there. They kept watching their movies. One morning, Mark Spitz stumbled on some brain-wiped wretch standing at the fry station of the big hamburger chain and had to shoot him on general principles. Out of the abundance of a life, to choose fry duty. And you can tell the book is funny. A lot of it's really cynical. And here's a gem about PASD. One canny psychotherapist, Dr. Neil Herkheimer, who'd made a fortune in the days before the flood with a line of self-help books imparting the Herkheimer solution to human unhappiness, delivered the big buzzword of the moment, PASD, or post-apocalyptic stress disorder. Dr. Neil Herkheimer climbed aboard a buffalo-bound chopper soon after his diagnosis. As the chopper disappeared into the sky, he could be seen through the tiny window giving his buddies at Camp El Dorado a vigorous thumbs up. Mark Spitz heard people jabbering about it over pea soup in the mess tents, or as he handed crates of powdered milk and vitamin supplements to eager survivors in the scattered camps from an armor-plated supply truck. Everyone suffered from PASD. Herkheimer put it at 75% of the surviving population, with the other 25% under the sway of pre-existing mental conditions that were, of course, exacerbated by the great calamity. In the new reckoning, 100% of the world was mad. Seemed about right. And of course, if you suffer from PASD, that also means that you suffer from the past. Smart, huh? There's a whole bunch of metropolitan references, kind of inside jokes for New Yorkers. Buffalo had not yet divulged who was going to get resettled in Manhattan once the sweepers were finished, but Gary had long been skeptical that he would be among them. 
You think we're going to end up here? We ain't special. They're going to put the rich people here, politicians and pro athletes, those chefs from those cooking shows. It's going to be a lottery, Caitlin sighed. She opened a meat tube and squeezed it into her mouth. Lottery shit, Gary said. They're going to put us on Staten Island. (laughs) And this description of New York City. New York City in death was very much like New York City in life. It was still hard to get a cab, for example. The main difference was that there were fewer people. It was easier to walk down the street. No grim herds of -of out-of-towners shuffled about. No amateur fascist up the street machinated to steal the next cab. There were no lines at the mammoth organic food stores once you reached checkout after stepping over the spilled rice and shattered jars of bloody tomato sauce, an environmentally conscious package of whatnot thrown to the floor during the brief phase of looting. The hottest restaurants always had a prime table waiting, even if they hadn't updated the specials since the winnowing of the human race got underway. You could sit where you wanted to in the movie theaters if you could suffer sitting in the dark where monsters occasionally shifted their thighs. There's also these insinuations about New York City being a place where you get consumed, which reminded me of a client who came back after several years in the Bay Area and said, that place will eat you up. And I don't know what he has against Connecticut, but he can't say a word about it without calling it some insult. The one I noted down was repugnant Connecticut, but thanks to culturalfront.org, He went to the trouble, or she went to the trouble of listing them, and here's a sample. Abhorrent Connecticut, abominable Connecticut, accursed Connecticut, bad news Connecticut, botched Connecticut, degenerate Connecticut, effing Connecticut, goddamned Connecticut, loathsome Connecticut. You get the idea. It goes on and on and on. Now, pretty much everything I've read you is from Friday, but I promise the action picks up on Saturday and Sunday. And I haven't seen any mention of a movie being made of the book, but it does have that feel in the later parts where the action is rising and the writing is kind of less present. The novel didn't win any notable awards, though I can't think of any zombie novel that does. Critically, though, it was pretty acclaimed. In Esquire, the reviewer Tom... Chiarella wrote that Whitehead brilliantly reformulates an old hat genre to ask the epidemic question of a teetering history, the question about the possibility of survival. And bookseller and British novelist Glenn Duncan, he likened the pairing of genre and literary fiction to an intellectual dating a porn star. Seems a little unfair to the to the genre, or maybe even to the porn star. He concluded that Zone One is a cool, thoughtful, and for its ludic violence, strangely tender novel, a celebration of modernity and a preemptive wake for its demise. Though he said that stylistically the novel takes a while to settle, but that when it does, Whitehead writes with economy, texture, and punch. I did wonder if Colson wrote all of the Friday section before he realized he was actually going to have to make something happen. Charlie Jane Anders observed, this is one zombie story that nobody's ever told before, 
And he said, the book pays off marvelously, though, as I say, some Amazon reviewers would would completely disagree. He also wondered if the, quote, heavy, unpredictable, and sometimes indiscernible use of flashbacks represented a deliberate attempt to deny the reader any feeling of narrative satisfaction through denseness and obfuscation. And to that, I would say some Amazon reviewers definitely agree. It reminded me of the scene in the movie The Bookshop, which I just recently watched, where the new bookshop owner sends a packet of books to someone in town. And that person writes back, Please spare yourself the trouble of sending more books of poetry and spuriously complicated novels. <laughs> He's talking here about Kingly Amos's book, The Uncertain Feeling. Uh, but then he continues, but please send more Ray Bradbury. That's great. I hope you will give Zone 1 a chance. I tried not to spoil it for you, and lots does happen. As zombie novels go, it's a pretty fun read. And Colson Whitehead is clearly an author worth reading more of. This book was actually my first by him. And perhaps we'll get a chance to cover uh, some of his other books in a future podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.